Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. And uh, as I've been just sort of drifting around in this spiritual milieu for the last 12 years, uh, it's so revelatory to come across incredible uh, artists and uh, people that have uh, sort of stretched across different paradigms of uh, the entertainment strata. And what I mean by that is, you know, they maybe did some records as a musician. They might have written poetry, done documentary work, and published books as well. And I got a chance today to speak to somebody who really came up at a time uh, when, you know, the urban centers in this country were driving social consciousness through a lot of art and creation. Not everything was perfect by any means, but it was before white flight and uh it had a huge impact on my guest uh decorated documentary filmmaker she's also an amazing author i happened to stumble into a record store here in tucson and uh just digging around really wasn't planning on buying anything and i just found this incredible record called house of pain i was like i've never seen this and it had a bunch of accompanists some of my dearest friends in the world like Randy Brecker, who played on it. So I was like, wow, where is this cat? And sure enough, she was completely accessible online. And uh, now I get a chance to break it down with her. Uh, Sarah Kernikin, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, and thank you for rescuing my record from the pen. <laughs> it was rescued. It's got a lot of snap, crackle, and pop, but I got to tell you, it's it's haunting, and in some ways holds up better today than maybe even it did then, although I wasn't even around at that time. And I, I, you know, I just wanted you to talk, if you could, sort of give, give the audience a, a visual depiction of, you know, New York City, especially when you first became conscious of it as a young girl, because when I talked to a lot of the cats, especially guys that kind of moved into the city in the early 70s, or they moved up from places like Miami, you know, they were stunned because, um, well, number one, it was very drab. Uh, it was a very, it was not an elitist kind of place. Uh, it was a kind of a gray c- color. Uh, people like Thelonious Monk would just be randomly playing jazz clubs, like amidst the masses. But really, what's fascinating to me on a socioeconomic level is just the idea that so many of the um, apartments, the downstairs floor was commercial, and then above that, it was residential. So there was just a communal feel, and it wasn't perfect. Obviously, there were rough parts of town and stuff, but I just wanted you to me today, New York is just so McDonaldized, and so much of the spirit has moved to Brooklyn, thankfully. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your, your your perceptions of New York when it started to come into realization for you. Oh, that's a difficult question because as much as I, time as I spent in New York back then, I was also always running away from it. Um, my first exposure was I was a college student at Sarah Lawrence, and uh, I joined a poetry workshop or a writer's workshop at St. Mark's Place um, in a church. And that was my first contact with the uh, kind of underground writer's scene that was just starting to um, show up in the pages of The Village Voice. 
I dropped out of college because those writers that I met inspired me to want to become a writer right away and start to live life rather than writing about college, which didn't <laughs> interest me. So uh, I dropped out of college and got a job at the Village Voice, actually. Um, New York then was extremely dirty, uh, hard to breathe. Um, Interesting. Uh, just stop right there. So you're telling me was, there was a lot of pollution. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it took them a while to clean up their act where that was concerned. But right, I, right. I do remember crossing the street and having, you know, trucks with black smoke just you know, barfing smoke in my face, um, <laughs> and that I would try to hold my breath when I crossed the street always, and I could get onto a, a side street where um, those trucks weren't, um, and the cars as well. But, you know, we're talking about the late 60s here, so, um, you know, really the, the push to become, to improve the quality of life in the city um, had not begun yet, although we had a very you know, kind of genteel, suave mayor who seemed to live in a bubble quite above the rest, you know, the, the sort of Upper East Side life. Um, so I don't think he was quite aware that nearly all the neighborhoods surrounding his place of residence um, were filthy. And um, Fascinating. But, but it was always vibrant, you know, the cultural life was always there, and I think it, it, it you know, as long, you know, way back into t Hamilton's time, it was always a place to get excited and start talking about stuff. So, uh, you know, that much hadn't changed, and that's what, it, what drew me to New York, and still does, but at the same time, I really don't like it here. Uh, and I didn't back then either, um, having uh, come from the country. <clears throat> Uh, your pops was the law professor at Columbia? Yes. He and my mother both commuted into the city from Connecticut. Oh, interesting. So wait, so that's fat. So you were, they were taking Metro North into, into the city every day? Uh, she drove because she was handicapped, um, to the United Nations, um, most days as a consultant for UNESCO. And he took the train, yes. Okay, so you, so it wasn't, you guys were in Upper West Side Cats. I mean, you were in, in New England or Connecticut. Uh, what was the, so the first time you actually resided in, in Gotham was uh, at college? Um, we, it, it was in uh, technically the Bronx, in Yonkers. Um, so kind of part of New York, but not really. Uh, you know, there are some very nice kind of uh, suburbs of the city out there, but technically they're all part of the Bronx. It was a 20-minute train ride into New York. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, I <sighs> we just lost this incredible, he just passed away, um, it was an amazing bass player. He also played, uh, <clears throat> acted, and directed the the mime troupe, uh, which was uh, a theatrical sort of um, uh, unit out in the Bay Area. It's a guy named Bruce Barthol, and he was. You know, I'm always fascinated with like the influence that the beat writers specifically um, had on vocabulary in music itself, a lot of people give them credit for writing about this language of music called bebop. And I'm not saying that that's your wheelhouse by any means, but I just, I was wondering if you could talk about 
how not just how the writers inspired you, but how if 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 in fact those writers were were writing, what were they writing about that was stimulating to you? Because I know that, I mean, this came after uh, Kerouac and 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 Ginsburg and and Ferlinghetti. Those guys were already established by the late '60s. Right, right. No, I I loved Ginsburg. I didn't read a lot of poetry, though. I mean, um, I wasn't not influenced by the Beats. You know, my my favorite writers were. Faulkner and Thomas Pynchon and C was a biggie for me. Wow. Catch twenty two, um, you know. But and I like the the I like the writers of a slightly earlier era who were writing in sort of a surreal fashion. <clears throat> you know, I, I was all about pushing the language and trying to express something in a in a way that nobody had ever done before with that sort of arrogance of youth. Um, so my early writing was fairly incomprehensible. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did. No, no. I think this music is... an image, yeah. um, which inevitably led to music, which was a much better place to put it, you know. It le- less pretentious place? Were people like, were you being judged in the writing community because of the surrealism of, and progressive writing that you were take, that you were doing? Well, more impressionistic. I mean, it was more natural to the kinds of songs that were being written there. Once we got out of the folk era and into the Dylan era, you know, then uh, language became a lot more scrambled. <clears throat> and uh, I, I, the kinds of writers I was referring to who were of the surreal kind, you know, some of them just used to take pages of words and cut them all up and rearrange them in a random order, and that was their writing. So a lot of experimentation was going on. And in music, once Dylan kind of went into the surreal, which he did after, you know, he went electric pretty right. much, um, <clears throat> that gave license to all to songwriters to not necessarily imitate him, but to loosen up, um, you know, and, and introduce... making connections that didn't necessarily make sense until, like poetry, you read them again and and again or listened again and again. You give an example of, like, I've tried to document this uh, time. I just, it was kind of cosmic because just maybe a month ago I was in New England and uh, wound up at Al Cooper's house in Somerville. And, you know, we were... Yeah, it was really cosmic. I've done a couple interviews with him. He's 80 years old, still rocking out. And, uh, but, you know, what was, uh, I always, like, can you talk about, you know, when Dylan plugged in, it wasn't, he was the one that was, it was only Dylan that was vilified by the more purest folk cat uh, fans out there. I mean, it, a lot of the black blues players, they always plugged in. Um, when you said, you said something to the effect that when Dylan plugged in, things got very surreal um, and and people lightened up. Can you give like an example of what you mean by that? About what Dylan did? Well, I mean, what was the, the, well, I mean, the what, turning point? Yeah, I mean, even, um, even for... Are you, even, thinking, are yeah. you asking for an example of a song or... Yeah, well, no. So, so I mean, what I've documented is that, like, the Forest Hills Queens gig, you know, uh, playing at the, on those tennis courts, you know, it was an eerie night, and uh, it was Harvey Brooks, and it was um, Robbie Robertson, and uh, Cooper, and that was 
you know, and 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 those guys, you know, to a man, they said it was uh, a very mixed response. But he was really, he was the one that you know where it was like this division between the folk purists and the and the more progressive music people. So I guess what you know, like aside from just plugging in, yeah, I mean, how did that that create this sort of permission for people to loosen up in all different forms of art? Um, well, the song that that came about, and here we go into Al Cooper, was like a Rolling Stone. Right. I mean, that just washed over you like a, a maverick wave. Um, and I think part of the hue and cry was that a lot of uh, music people, musicians, critics, were being put out of business kind of the minute he turned on that amplifier and did that fierce song. Um, they knew their days were numbered. Wow. You know, that was wow. the end of folk. You know, it's game over. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, That's so interesting. Continued, you know, because of the Vietnam War. But, you know, the sort of genteel um, playing of, of songs from the past, you know, uh, or that told, you know, stories more or less cogently, um, all of that ended. You know, and and everybody wanted that driving beat. The Beatles were also introducing a lot of sur- surreal lyrics. That was the time of, of Sergeant Pepper. You know, when you, when you had a day in the life, which was also uh, seminal, really. Um, so, my, you know, I'm not a historian or anything like that, but as far as my own influences, I would say Randy Newman and the Beatles, um, who... You know, I mean, Randy Newman was fairly straightforward in terms of imagery, but um, the Beatles were really, you know what? It was probably the acid. (laughs) Yeah, well, that was where I was going. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was like, (laughs) I'm curious if you could talk about, because I mean, I've, I've written a whole book on my interviews with the remaining Merry Pranksters. Obviously, I never got to Keezy, but, um, you know, it was just the beats, and then the pranksters fell between the beats and the hippies. But man, what was going on at the Longshoremen's Hall in San Francisco with the acid tests, uh, and then up and down the coast? I I have to believe there was a ripple effect going on on the East Coast. In fact, I know there was. But were you ensconced in psychedelics? Can you talk about really just sort of breaking open and becoming completely? Uh, vulnerable to uh, to the moment in terms of artistic creation. I mean, for me, at 44, I keep wanting to say 43, but 44, I mean, acid was not very, always pretty for me. But I do know that, fundamentally, it put me into the intergalactic, and therefore I now can uh, just be a little bit fearless. And I just wanted to know the impact that it had on you. Uh, clearly, uh, you know, things were being made at a very pure level in the mid sixties before it eventually became illegal. Oh, tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Bathtubs of acid, you know, it was just unbelievable, but it was very pure. Uh, you know, I I mean, do you want to talk about, uh, Sarah Kay pre LSD and then post LSD? Let's see, pre-LSD would have been, um, uh, let's see, my first acid trip was 60, 
1958. That was it. Um, but by then it was so prevalent. Well, talk about your uh, first trip. I mean, was it in the rural country or was it, it wasn't in the Bronx? God, I hope not. Oh, no. I, I had learned from smoking dope that it's really best to put yourself in a pretty place. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, true. And my college campus was attractive, but it began in somebody's bedroom, um, frankly. It, you know, I, I, we had taken what we thought was masculine, and when it didn't take effect after about 45 minutes, my <clears throat> partner said, um, well, uh, I guess this is weaker than I thought. Let's, let's, you know. Oh dear. So oh dear. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, time passed with my eyes closed and, and I was at the point of, uh, rushing around in the sky like a superhero. I mean, you know, the, 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 the motion was in my entire psyche, um, the motion of flying. <clears throat> and um, I felt a tap on my shoulder, and, I, and my companion said, this is acid we took, not mescaline. He, he didn't know. Mm, um, and I couldn't remember what that meant. I couldn't remember <laughs> what the word meant, except that it sounded scary. So I opened my eyes, and everything in the room was writhing. <laughs> it was very frightening, but he was very experienced. He, he used to take acid every weekend. So um, he was able to talk me through it. And where I ended up once I shed my name, my identity, and pretty much everything that I, you know, that had previously defined me, once that fell away and I was in a pure state of being, that was something that changed my life. Uh, I, ne I never basically came down from that. Um, really? I mean, but this was, I mean, you're talking about it in a, Positive fashion. Uh, yeah. not, you, you you definitely didn't wind up in your basement for the rest of your life. I mean, but but it really never, it really never. I mean, you were fundamentally changed. For you know, your psyche was changed forever. Yes, I mean, I knew what it felt like to simply be, and I I guess I'm not bragging. It it it, it, it felt like enlightenment. You know, sure. I was in the light, and I was in. I was inside the love, um, which, you know, the Beatles obviously were very experienced with, <laughs> with acid as well. That's something that they felt as well, which is how you get songs like All You Need Is Love. Um, and they were also like uh, throwing... It, it seemed to be that every need was met in this hmm. white, white place. Hmm. It's very well articulated. I mean, uh, what... Would you say that uh, at a certain point, did that, I mean, I'm looking here at House of Pain, which is just, I mean, it's a haunting album. It, it's haunting. And oh, it, I mean, and kind of progressive. Uh, I just wonder. Well, I had a music upbringing that meant that I was never going to be right, writing in, you know, the four, the four chord. Thank, you know, God. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah, thank that. God. There are much more interesting things. It was more angular, like... right? It was, it was just, can you talk about how your 
I mean, you mentioned me off off air that you know you're not, like I'm not really a musician, but at, at this point in chron- chronologically in your life, I mean, would you say that 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 psychedelic experience sort of catapulted you into creating the first your first records? I don't know about that. Because um... I mean, part of this album, even though it's not like jammed out and really like instrumentally improvisational it it is psychedelic really in it in kind of in in like in like like i would say like like it's well no because you know what i'm talking about is like some of the messages remind me of when i opened my eyes and everything was writhing in the room that was that was scary i wouldn't the album is kind of is scary to me and i have to you know it just it, it it just it, it feels a little bit. I mean, I just don't know how much of it is a direct correlation to your own life experiences. Well, the cover is scary. I'll give you that. And the music video I made for it is. Um, There's a music video. Is discomforting. Yeah, it's online. Oh, yeah, okay. it was an early one. I mean, there were no such thing as music. Oh, absolutely. That's way ahead of time. Yeah, I was a filmmaker, so I used my advance to do to make a video that was uh, part horror movie, part animation, and part performance, um, which I you could definitely say was psychedelic. Uh, but my idea was that since I didn't want to perform um, because I wasn't good enough and I didn't have a band, um, that the you know that RCA could simply run this video in record stores and it would probably sell the record. And they thought it was crazy. <laughs> I offered it to them for free. I said, you have this new video equipment, you know, this home video stuff that everybody's going to buy. So take that equipment and put it in a record store. You know, people will probably watch it. You know, it's only, you know, a three minute film. So uh, they didn't take me up on it. So. Uh, I do consider myself to be sort of predictive in that way. Um, but you're asking about LSD and its influence on my music, and I really don't know what to tell you. Um, oh, that's cool. No, I mean, I'm, just, I'm looking album, here. Yeah. My second album does have something like that, uh, a long, long, long cut called Room Service. Um that has a 20-piece string orchestra on it, and I was able to get quite psychedelic with that. Uh, the tune that, there's a couple on this side, the, the second side here, one of them is, the, the, the tune that got me was Easy Girl. Um, oh, yeah. And that yeah. is, uh, you know, I, I, Papa locked me in a room before he we went out drinking. I thought I'd go mad. I had that hungry, sinking feeling, broke out the window, got to meet a man. Pa will beat me. I won't feel it. I, I mean, it just goes on and on. And that's just one of the songs. So, I mean, can you talk where, I guess, not specifically that tune per se, but can you talk about where the germs for some of your songs came from? Was it direct application or was this just sort of stuff that was in the ether? Well, I am a fiction writer and always was. Yeah. So that was just a story that came to me when I was you know, writing the music. Um, it seemed to be, start high and then go deep was what, what the actual music was doing. It was descending um, into mm. a more primal place. And 
that was the story I built around it, you know, in the way that one invents stories to write short stories or, or novels or whatever. Um, I don't, in a, in a more spiritual sense, where did it come from? I'm pretty used to just opening the channel and letting anything come through. As far as I'm concerned, it's already all out there. Uh, it's just a matter of, um, you know, opening the flu, F-L-U-E, uh, you know, to let it in. And, you know, but I, that's pretty much the way I write, except when I'm trying to earn money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, well, I'm going to go back. Wait, so, so you... On assignment, you know, you don't get to go there. <laughs> absolutely. No, and one reason I love doing the Jake Feinberg show is just full creative control. And I feel like you're about that as well. But chances are, if you've got a gig and somebody's paying you, you lose a little, you're a little bit more restricted. But um, can you talk about um, being getting out of how you learned it before it sounds like to me that you were a vessel or an open channel did you did you learn how to get out of your own way and become a conduit for information coming through you early in your life can you talk about a definitive moment of when you were literally uh, channeling information coming through you from a from the outer sources yeah uh, it actually happened in 1974, which was the year that my album came out. It wasn't the year when I wrote the songs. Um, but I started to... I, I, I had some experiences with a ghost in my parents' house where I was living because um, I'd broken up with my boyfriend. And they ha- uh, I was put in a room, because mine had been turned into my father's study. I was put in a room that I never slept in before uh, at the top of the house. And um, some very strange noises and experiences, you know, between waking and sleeping um, started to happen, and I was getting freaked out about it. So I went to a psychic. Um, I didn't tell him anything. Uh, but he, out of the blue, he said, by the way, there's a spirit around you, somebody that you knew. Wow. It's a male, and he's protective. And that's all he said. Um, but I was able to go back to... I, I, it took some of the fear away. So I went back into the room, and I, I looked around, and I realized that this room was where they stuffed all my grandfather's stuff, my dead grandfather's stuff. And he was a composer. Um wow. So I, I talked to the air. I just said, I, okay, I, I know who you are now. I, I guess you're trying to get through to me, and um, I'll now be open to it if you would manage not to scare me like that. So find a way where I'm not going to get freaked out, <clears throat> and um, I'll listen to what you have to say. So that began uh, a relationship which persists to this day. Um, my grandfather, I didn't know him really, he died when I was eight, but I do remember his piano, and I have his piano right now, uh, and a ring of his, and um, the contact with him is less now uh, than when I was in more turbulent times, and he was a guide during that time, and he funneled music to me, and I knew it was he was doing it because I would be given a phrase of music and I would in the dream and it wasn't a dream really it was I was aware of the room around me but my eyes were closed um, 
I was given a phrase of music and made to repeat it over and over and over again so I would have it memorized by the time I woke up. And sometimes they were accompanied by stories that then the song became about. Um, and this led to a song cycle that never got recorded called Sleep Around Town, which was songs of puberty, all kids going through puberty. And that uh, led me into the theater where they did an actual uh, production of the songs. Um, this is m blowing my mind right now. Well, I'm sorry, what um, was it like? And, the and I was told by the psychic when I went back to him and I said, it's my grandfather. He said, well, when he, was, when he died, he was working on a piece that was kind of an odd length, like Kurt Bile's Seven Deadly Sins. Right. You know, like 45 minutes. Um, and he wants you to write something like that. And that's what this song cycle was. It was about 45 minutes. With family like your grandfather uh, in other parts of your life? I mean, that is uh, uh, almost, well, it is completely supernatural, but totally real. Oh, yeah. I, I, I finally did an entire blog about it in chapters. It's book length, and it's called At Home with a Ghost, which tells not just the whole story of my grandfather, but my continuing adventures with spirit and uh, and poltergeist and you know, the, the lower spirit world as well as the upper um, wow. over my life. Um, you know, there, it's not frequent, um, but there are, there are stretches of time where there was quite intense contact. Um, would you mind sharing, could you share, I, my could, could you share, um, uh, a time when the lower world spirits, how you navigated them and maybe how they actually maybe were helpful to you in some way? Oh God, that's a long story. It's all in the blog, but, um, in the short version, is, yeah. uh, I, I lived in Morocco for a year and, <clears throat> and, um, I went with some Moroccan friends, some women who were going to, uh, kind of a, a witch, um, in the country because they wanted some spells done. And I went along because, you know, I'm a writer and I, I love a good story, but never for a minute did I believe it was going to actually lead to something um, that was going to torment me for the rest of my stay there. Um, but, um, but basically just to get the story, uh, I laughed and told her that what I wanted was a genie, you know, who would do whatever I want. And she said to my friends, she's much smarter than you are, because when she gets a genie, she's not going to need me. <laughs> um, but um, I was put through a ritual, and um, I acquired a genie who, uh, or they call it a jinn there, um, who, who then kind of faded back and a whole lot of uh, riffraff rushed in. Mm. So, you know, I had to be given, you know, incantations and little rituals, you know, things to say to get rid of them whenever they would kind of um, wake me up or, you know, I, I would have sensations like fingers digging in my ribs, you know, that were very unpleasant, you know, and very inconvenient. I was trying to write a book. Um, so this went on uh, and I thought it 
I thought it would stop when I left Morocco after a year, and I went from Casablanca to Haiti, of all places, wow. on a vacation. <laughs> wow. And um, the Jinun, the, the Jins, you know, followed me, and I thought, oh, this, this, I'm not going to continue this. So I sought out a, a Christian medium who um, hmm. was able to get rid of them on the spot. So you know. I never had I'm curious, it's just funny that, like, uh, I was down in New Orleans a few years ago on the, doing some rogue journalism with uh, Bill Summers, who's uh, an incredible ethnomusicologist and percussion, African percussionist, and also an amazing cat, and he he had a queen from uh, the Queen of Zambia, uh, or some, some, some country in Africa, uh, Queen Diambi there, and... Um, and they performed this ritual, uh, sort of a, a ceremony. There were several uh, uh, women there, uh, along with the queen, and uh, they made it very clear to me, uh, nothing, this is spiritual, this is just between us and the spirit, so no filming, no photography, this is just something with, that we, is shared between us. And, um, and so, you know, I was on my best behavior, I snapped a couple of still photos. Didn't take any video. The next day, <laughs> um, I am going around New Orleans, bopping around, going to see abstract music and this, that, and the other. And I'm taking a taxi home, and I get back to the hostel where I was staying, and my phone disappeared, gone, just gone in the, in the it just in the ether. Nobody couldn't find it. Had to go buy a new one. And it was one of those lessons where it was like, hey, dude, you know, man, you are just lucky. Just be lucky and grateful that you could experience that and do not tempt fate and go and ever push the spirit realm because it's real. And I just wonder if you, because you were so dogged about writing a book, um, trying to get this information out, do you feel like that was something you learned, like, like when you went to Morocco, uh, was it clear to you after that, that some things are not meant to be shared with the world? Uh, I don't even know if the book was, but I don't know if the book, I'm sorry. I don't know if even the book had anything to do with that. You said you were looking for a good story. So you went to, 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 with these women to see this witch. And I don't know if this, if your book was even going to be about that, but I just wonder because it sounds like you, quote-unquote, got cursed for a minute. And I just wonder if that was a lesson to you in recognizing that some things are not meant to be shared. Um, well, I have shared it. It's, as I said, it's on my blog. And I, at the time, I was not writing a book about that. It was just a, you know, a story that interested me. Totally. Oh, I get it. Yeah, I did. Another, totally, yeah. to another song just so that maybe... We won't have this problem anymore. <laughs> no, we're going to continue. It's not a problem either. It's it, it's very real. <laughs> um, anyway, no, no, you you uh, encountered local spirits, you know, right. their own lo local rules, you know. Um, and in, in my opinion, those spirits are partly created and fueled by the belief of the... Um, inhabitants of that region, you know, which is why, you know, the ways of dealing with them are the local ways 
And um, if you come in as a Westerner, you have to learn how to maneuver within that if you really want to, and sometimes the price. Can you talk? I'd love you to. One of the L's on my show is love, and uh, and that comes in many forms. But I would like you to talk a little bit about um, your daughter. Uh, does she recognize you as a as a conduit for magic? Um, where can you do? And I guess maybe with I have two daughters of my own, and I, what I've realized over time is, I mean, they are my heartbeat, and uh, you know, they are my inspiration. But in some ways, I feel like respect is more important than love. And I just wanted you to talk about if you feel like your daughter understands your true you know, your, your abilities and your, uh, the ability for you to be a force of nature. Well, she herself as an adolescent, you know, witnessed a few manifestations of my grandfather, which scared the shit out of her. And he wasn't trying to be scary. It was just little things like doors opening and closing by themselves and stuff like that, or light bulb shattering, you know, so she or blinking, you know, I mean, so she witnessed that, um, and part of her, uh, you know, it had to, you know, was forced to accept it, and yet it was more important for her in the terms of growing up to um, attribute that all to the fact that her mother was a crackpot. Um, so I let her do that, but Later, you know, when she was in college and needed some counseling, what she did not want from her mother, I sent her to an astrologer. And she's a great devotee now of astrology. Hmm. Um, But that's as far as it goes. I don't think she really questions how it is, why it is that astrology works. You know, because at at that point, when you reach that understanding, you have to take into account that there are um, other dimensions in play um she does she so she no longer sees her wonderful mother as a crackpot i would assume um well she'll call me a freak but i mean that's a good it's it's fly your freak flag freely that's the point you know (laughs) she's she yeah she's not really able to do that you know, it'll be interesting to see how much further out she goes. Right, life. yeah. But she, you know, but she she didn't she wasn't privy to the same experiences that I had, and she doesn't want to read my blog, you know. She kind of doesn't want to know about them. She doesn't want to get in any deeper, um, the way a lot of men react, by the way, uh, when women talk about experiences like this. Yeah, I, I think it's the most amazing. Th- I, I have no problem with it. I think it's just absolutely the greatest thing in the world, operating at some sort of multidimensional level. Um, but if you, uh, you know, no matter what, I mean, she is in your, she's your bloodline, so she can ignore it all she wants, but it's going to keep popping up. And so I think... I don't o- know. I don't know. I mean, some some people are not receptive in that way. And I'm not as receptive as as others you know who actually are channelers and and psychics and things like that i don't have those abilities though i would like to um so i'm able to live very well in the material plane um but i always keep in touch with the other and um it's manifesting even more now uh for two reasons one is that i'm old you know and 
everyone thinks about death a lot when mm. they're in their 70s. And I'm one of the few people I know that's kind of excited to die. I don't really want to suffer the dying part, but death itself, I think, is going to be very cool. I want you to talk about, please talk about um, this this excitement. What What are you at least feeling? I don't want to say, I've learned a long time, well, not a long time ago, but I've learned never going to approach things with intention only and no expectations. So I, I hope that you're not going in with lots of expectations, but more instinct and intuition. What are you feeling excited about? Um, well, it would be nice to see some of the dead people again. You know, I'd certainly like to see my granddaughter. Right. <laughs> he's, he's chomping at the bit, you know. Yeah, he may be the first person to meet me. Which would be Dude, great. he's going to meet you at the gate, man. I mean, he's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, me, so uh, reconnecting with 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 uh, you. Did you know your grandfather before he passed? Uh, not that much. Interesting. I mean, I was only a kid. You mm-hmm. know, I was eight. We didn't see him that often. I have some impressionistic memories of him. I have a postcard from him that I found. I have his old, you know, sheet music. Uh, he was a composer and and a music publisher. Um, so uh, I I I had not expected or even thought about him very much. I didn't expect to have any contact with him, you know, or or even I didn't know at first why, you know, why me. No idea. Is there? So I really do you would like to meet him? Sure, um, yeah. And he left behind some things that did imply he too had a quite a spiritual life. You know, I mean, prime prime evidence was that he was very high up in the Masonic. Um, he he was a ma- Freemason. Wow. And used to compose music for their weird rituals, and I have photos of him in in his weird satin gear and the hat and everything. Of course, you can't find out anything of what goes on in there, but I suspect it's of a spiritual nature um, by the evidence of the writings he left behind. You know, uh, (laughs) did you, prior to doing your first documentary film, had you had an opportunity to go to the down into the south or places where there were uh, tent revivals, uh, Pentecostal church tent revivals? Uh, I never had any thought of doing that, although I was interested in religion as not not wanting to join any particular religion, but just interested in what people got out of it or what their beliefs were. Um, so when my partner and I met Marjo in New York, um, you know, we became fascinated with his story of being, uh, he was, he was kind of a hippie wannabe actor who, um, earned money half of the year by going out and becoming a, you know, a holy roller preacher. Um, they had no idea that he had this other life. So we were sort of fascinated by that, and so we went with him to some of his revival meetings, kind of disguising ourselves as born-again Christians. And that was really where I saw up close um, the the altered state uh, that some people go into, and that really interested me. Um, Can you talk about, we really, because I just interviewed Edgar Winter last week, and him and Johnny... uh, uh, you know, he was just like, dude, if you think rock and roll is high energy, 
And we were talking more about uh, Pentecostal uh, uh, black tent revival. Uh, you know, it was it was the idea. Uh, he just said there was the <laughs> he said things went on in there that were un indescribable. Didn't make any sense. It was the most euphoric thing you could ever. He goes, it makes rock and roll look incredibly small. And I would love yeah. you to talk about that. Ex maybe the first time you, not just like what was, uh, like what was going, like the altered states. And, and ultimately, did you actually connect with that at some level as well over making the film? I connected with it in the form of envy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I mean, we were there to do an expose because it was kind of appalling that, you know, the obvious manipulation of the um, preachers to get money out of right. the congregation, often very poor congregations, hmm. and including a black church where we filmed, um, which was run by a white woman in a white nurse's uniform. Get out of here. Wrapped around her finger. Oh, you should see the film. It still holds up. I can't wait to see it. Wait, and sorry, what, what town was this in? Uh, that one was Detroit. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow, that is yeah. mind-blowing. But, you know, people would go into trance, and, um, you know, it wasn't so much the speaking of tongues. It was them sort of giving themselves entirely to the music and whatever spirit they could feel in the place. And I felt there was something there and that they actually were getting their money's worth um, because, you know, some of them led very proscribed and sometimes lives full of abuse. And this was one place where you could, one way that you could get utterly free um, and let, you know, God um, or spirit or whatever you want to call it, you know, to be, you know, what they call the infilling of the spirit. Oh, man. The, the infilling was something that, you know, I really wanted. I just didn't want it to be the Christian God, you know. I just and, and I had had my acid trip by then. So I knew what that altered state was. Um, right. I'd never done it without drugs, and these people are definitely doing it without drugs. So, um, yeah, that impressed me, too, um, at that point. Um, Do you, can you talk? I mean, was there... Were there uh, cats with like guitars up on. I mean, was, was the music sort of blues based? Um, let's see. I mean, the hymn, the hymnal stuff it, is it, in yeah. L.A. In L.A. and uh, Anaheim, which were two of the places we shot. It was more traditional, you know. You know the the rock of ages kind of right. Um, you know what a friend have we in Jesus kind of thing. It's just traditional and white. And down in Dallas Fort Worth, where we shot another one, it was country, and in Detroit, it was black. Can you talk Gospel. about the black? That that that's the one because that's the tr that's the that is the one that's the the most authentic, you know. And I just wonder what if the if the if you cats would get up and start playing dobros or guitars, like because I mean that you know part of it was like this idea of like you're playing the devil's music. But that was the whole part is that that's how you get the blues brings that spirit completely to life. And I'm, you know, I got to tell you, I mean, the way that you just riffed on that, when I go see my, my friends on the road, my favorite bands, I'm in the front row and it's like a Pentecostal tent revival for me. I'm accessing mm -hmm. the spirits and I'm bringing voltage to the bandstand. And that's mm -hmm. all I care about. And I just think that that is, 
Do you remember the name of the church in Detroit? No. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, I don't remember the names of any of them. Um, so did you feel like... All, I think, yeah. you know, pretty much like Assembly of God places. Um, but they, they were real holy roller places. Um, they rocked out. That was part of their attraction. You know, I mean, after sedate, you know, there are sedate forms of Christianity, <sighs> Presbyterian and stuff like that, where it's not about the music, and it's very boring, but there's absolutely nothing boring about a Pentecostal meeting. And that's how they, that's how they get people into the tent. Um, and it's part of the enjoyment. Um, you know, even, even you know, Marjo, or the subject of our documentary, he was a fake, but he said, I really love the music. Why do you, you know? so what, explain to Marjo, man, like, I, I'm just, maybe explain um, I, I guess only in hindsight, he, you realized he was a fake. I can't imagine you doing this film if you thought he was a fraud. Oh no, he told us. I mean, of course he was a fraud, and you know that, that was the whole thing about the film was someone who was admitting it and then taking us out on the road and showing it to us. Oh my God! Not I, just what he did, but what the other ministers did. That doesn't mean that all you know evangelical mysteries ministers are you know crooked at all but um we went to four different ones and all four were the same even the one where we thought that uh he was genuine we thought that was the one place where you know the the minister was on the level he was arrested later for running stolen cars across the border into mexico so (laughs) oh my god Basically, we couldn't find we couldn't find a straight one. Um, but anyway, um, that that was quite an adventure, and the movie made a huge splash. It was among the most publicized movies of the year that it came out, and it won the Oscar. So, and I was very young; I was like twenty. That is unbelievable! My God, I mean, wait. So, I just want to be clear: his Marjo's role was to take you to to see other pastors manipulate the parishioners. Yes. How can I access? Wanted- how can I access this film? By the way, I mean, do you have any burned DVD? Co- I really, I, we have to do set two, and I have to watch the film before we we do it. Oh no, we are, you can stream it. Is it on Netflix or something, or is it online? I was able to acquire the rights after it went out of print um, in two thousand five, and uh, you know, a, a distributor immediately stepped up and put out the DVD of it, which you can acquire. Um, but most everybody streams now, and it's available, you know, on Apple and Amazon, all those places. It's been it's done really well since it came out again, because in 2005, of course, we were in the Bush years, where four out of ten people in America were, were uh, you know, said they were born again. I mean, it, it had gone from this fringe thing when I made the movie to being enormous um, and very political, which was unimaginable back then. I so, mean, what's uh, amazing is that the dear, the Jimmy Carter, uh, he won a majority of evangelicals in the late 70s. You're right. Yeah. It was very apolitical yeah. at that time. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 So when it came out in 2005, it had another rev- rev- 
relevance that it had when it originally came out, where it played mostly in urban art houses. You know, it didn't play in the hinterlands where, you know, the, uh, you know, where the parishioners really were. Um, But when it came out in 2005, um, it got a whole lot of views, uh, you know, and press all over again. And it's really actually made money for me. Um, you know, it, it streams fairly constantly. Uh, I've had uh, people license footage from it. Kings of Leon, the Black Keys. Oh, I mean, my God. Listen to you. Way. It's because all they, coming back. Because they co- yeah, but some of them were raised in that, you know. And to see the movie, they saw, you know, hmm. another way of looking at it, you know. And many of them were very, you know disgruntled, you know, and had been scarred, in fact, by it. And by watching the movie, they can understand better um, what had happened to him and where the lies were. Sarah Kernikon, can we do set two? I mean, I just feel like we're just we're <laughs> just getting to pick up momentum, but I gotta I gotta dig deep on this on this doc before we do it. Well, you might want to check my second doc, which was made thirty years later, if you want to see a channeler. Of course, yeah, look, you you absolutely, I mean, in the last 55 minutes, you've proven, uh, you know, that it's the, the end of hope and the beginning of truth, and you are truth, so it, it really, <laughs> maybe. maybe, you know, it's a high maybe honor. I, I may be a facilitator of truth, I don't know. That's fine. But, um, you're con- anyway, you're- this, this, this short movie is 45, it's about 40 minutes long. It's called Foth, T-H-O-T-H. It's on YouTube, um, and it also won an Oscar. I really urge you to see that, you know, because Marjo's spiritual career was basically a lie, and this guy's spiritual career is all about the truth. Plus, he's incredibly entertaining. So watch them both. It's good to connect with you, my friend. I hope you had a good time. I'll get this... uh... (laughs) interview up later and then we'll plan for set two and if are you still in new york city too i am at present but i spend a lot of time in martha's vineyard now Uh, i like to be around the ocean well i look forward to meeting you in person someday as well my friend and i (laughs) send send you a lot of uh good warm blessing and uh continue doing your part to inspire people to be themselves thank you so much okay and thanks for buying my record Oh, I love it so much. All right. I got to find the other one, too. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye.